Hey everyone, this is Nick. I want to tell you about an amazing, amazing new sponsor, Factor 75. If you need convenience for food, if you work at an office where you need to bring lunches with you or anything of that factor, please, please, please check out Factor 75. Chef-made meals delivered directly to your home, already done. All you got to do is heat it up. It's an amazing deal. I can't say enough good things about it. You can use my code to get 50% off your first Factor 75 box, plus free wellness shots for life. They're like these little energy, not energy drinks, but these little shot drinks uh, that are good for your immune system and help boost your health. It's really, really cool. You definitely want to check it out. Please make sure that you use my code, Factor SE 46820 at checkout. That's Factor F-A-C-T-O-R-S-E 46820 when you check out to get that deal. Now, on with the show. For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Today's guest is an award-winning board game designer. With nearly 20 years of experience, chances are if you played board games, you have some of his stuff. Please welcome the one and only Corey Kaneska to Epic Realms. Right welcome there. on in. How are you doing? Hi, thanks for having me. So you started at Fantasy Flight in what, roughly around 2005. Were you designing yep. board games before then? Yeah, I mean, I, I it was always been a hobby of mine. I was designing board games, card games. Like I worked at a collectible card shop when I was like 16 years old and uh, was playing all sorts of CCGs and stuff and was with my friends. We were de designing our own CCG, hoping that someday it would be the, come the next magic or whatever. Um, so, I mean, that was back in then. 90s so yeah always yeah. been designed games was there a ccg you guys played back then that just kind of died off that you were super excited about and then it died and you're like oh man that was a great game i mean i was uh mostly into the star wars ccg that decipher made okay um and i played the star trek one before that but i dabbled in a bunch of other stuff too like uh, we were a big fan of the Wheel of Time book series. And so we got the World Wheel of Time CCG and that only had like two sets and then that died. Um, and there were a handful of other things that dipped my toe into, but those were my main ones. Yeah, I was a huge fan of the um, the Highlander CCG from the from the movie mm. and show and the the, the wrestling, yeah. wrestling one. And I think Aliens vs. Predator had one too. That was that okay. was kind of a very unique where you were like building the spaceship as you went and everybody, depending on what team you were on, depended on what thing they were doing. So uh, just like you, a big fan of CCGs back then, kind of was like, I should I should make my own. Uh, yeah, so. I had I had a lot of friends playing that Highlander game and like uh, L5R. I didn't get into those myself, but they were everywhere at the time. Everything. So what got you in, you know, you were, if you were doing stuff before you really got your first big break. How did you get that big break? What what was the transition between being friends and, you know, playing around and messing around to actually like getting a job and that becoming your career? Yeah. Um, so like I always just been making games to play with my friends. And it's funny, it's not that different now. Like I'll make a prototype and I'll invite my friends over and we'll play. Um, but at the time I had graduated college I had uh, gone to school for graphic design, and so I was working at a small print broker doing graphic design, business cards, letterhead, that sort of stuff. Um, and I liked it well enough, but I um, found the game Twilight Imperium, 
third edition was announced on FFG's website and I'd never heard of the game. And I'm like, wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds like a game that I need to play. So it was the first game I ever pre-ordered. Um, and I started like following their website just to like get news about the game and hear about the other games that they made. Um, and they just had a job posting on there. So I thought, hey, I designed games like in my spare time. Could I actually turn this into a career? So I wrote up a resume. I sent it in. Didn't hear back for like two months. And so I just figured I'm like, ah, sure. It just didn't work out. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. It's a moonshot. And out of the blue over the summer, I got a call that said, hey, we want to fly out here for an interview. I said, really? Okay. Yes, please. When? Um, and yeah, the rest is history. Nice. And you've been doing it for, I mean, 20 years, right? Almost. Yeah, Almost 20 19 years. this year. So looking back, you know, you've been doing it for so long. How has your process changed from, you know, that early, early game design to now when you're like, I have an idea for a game and putting one together, has the process changed or is it pretty much the same as it's always been? Yeah, that's a fair question. I think, I mean, I've changed as a gamer, That that's for sure. Like, I don't necessarily have time to play six hour board game um, in a in a night like yeah. I used to when I was in college or or shortly thereafter. And so like the games that I was making when I started FFG were these big epic affairs, um, giant 48 page rule book for Starcraft, the board game, like it was insane. Um, and while I still like and appreciate those games, those games don't hit my table as much. And so I find myself as a designer, not coming up with ideas for games that are necessarily like that. Um, as far as it comes to like my creative process, I think, I think it's it's very similar in the sense that like when inspiration strikes, like go and make a prototype as fast as possible. That's always kind of been my um, process. But I think the biggest change is just kind of all the things that I've learned from the industry and like what sorts of games are out there. And I'm a lot more aware of um, if I have an idea. And I think I'm like, oh, well, that game already exists or somebody's already done that way better than I could do it. It's not worth sinking time into. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned. Okay. Which which part of the, your process, you know, whether it's coming up with an idea or conceptualizing it, getting a physical first product out, play testing or whatever, what's kind of your favorite part of the process? What What part do you really get into the most? Yeah, I think that early part, where you've got this idea and and I'll obsess over it and think about, oh, how can I do this um, to the point where I should be sleeping and instead I'm laying in bed thinking, oh, what if I did this? What if I did that? Ooh, that's really cool. And I pull out my phone, write down some notes so I don't forget like that obsessive part of like an early game design is the most fun, but it can also be the most frustrating because um, Oftentimes you can run into dead ends where you've got this really cool idea that you're really excited about. And then there is some sort of hump that I can't get past. I'm like, uh, it's just not any fun. Yeah. Like I spent a week making this prototype and it's so boring. I've got a shelf full of games that are really cool pitches, um, but never kind of made it past that step. But I think what happens is that's that's the most exciting part, but I do like all of the process. And by the time I'm in any one stage of a game for a prolonged period of time, it can get frustrating. And so it's nice to like cycle through. And then when I'm near the end of a game design, I'm like wrapping it up to send it to the printer. That part can be really stressful and frustrating. But I can't wait to start a new game. And I get to start a new game. And then I get frustrated with <laughs> making lots of prototypes. And so right. it's, it's nice to do all of it. Variety's good. When you're when you're putting stuff and you say you know this didn't necessarily work out this is a really great concept and you put it on the shelf do you sometimes come back to those ideas for other games and reuse them or, or use them in other things you're like oh that thing i came up with would work really well in this game yeah absolutely um i sometimes i'll come back to it and i'll say you know i really liked that pitch maybe since i haven't touched it in like two years maybe it's worth pulling off my shelf and trying again um 
And I'll do that sometimes and I'll find that same problem. Or maybe I'll be like, well, what if I took that in an entirely different direction? Yeah. And uh, sometimes that works too. Distance helps. Do you ever find yourself, because I know you still play board games and I've, I've, I've heard other interviews where you said that you're playing other people's games and stuff and you'll, you'll do other things. Do you find sometimes that that feels more like work or does it still not feel like work to you? It depends. It depends. Like if I'm, you got to go into it with the right mindset. If I'm playing a game and I just keep thinking like, well, how can, how, how can I make this better? Or what house rule do you want to do? Like if, if I'm taking that approach, like, yeah, it feels like work, but um, for the most part, I, I don't do that. Um, it's, it's enjoyable to to play other people's games and then see something fresh. And that often will spark inspiration. A lot of people say that when you look at an author and you read their writings, you get to know a little bit about them. Do you think that there's a game that you've designed that people can play and by playing it, they get to little, know more about you? And if so, which, which game would that be? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> there's a question you didn't expect to see coming. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, the, the fun answer to that would be Battlestar Galactica. Like, <laughs> It, it, am I a sneaky, conniving person? No, <laughs> um, but I I like the kind of social dynamics that that game makes you um, take on. I, I think it's you're really a Cylon. We know it. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm self aware enough to know like what my games say about me. That that's a very hard thing to to see from inside the Looking Glass. Yeah, yeah. Well, talking about something like a Battlestar Galactica, you've worked on a lot of like third-party IPs, you know, owned by other companies. Are there third-party companies or third-party IPs that you've that you have done that you're like you were super excited to get a hold of them? And are there ones that you really wish you could have gotten your hands on? Sure. Yeah. I mean, every IP that I've gotten to work on has been like super amazing. I've been fans of just about, I mean, all of them. I'm looking, you might see me looking over to my left here. I keep looking over at my game shelf and I've yeah. got like the ones that I worked on. And I mean, we've got Battlestar Galactica. I love the show. Star Wars. Like I grew up with it. It was everything. Like um, <laughs> some of the other ones were like in-house IPs when I was working at Fantasy Flight Games. So there was like um, Elder Torer and yeah. Mansion of Madness and like they, are they an IP? Yeah, Arkham, Lovecraft. Yeah, um, for sure. And I um, I definitely like horror. I like the psychological aspects of it the most. Like, I'm not much of a shock gore horror guy, but I like kind of a, a thriller or a paranormal type thing. Um, Starcraft. I mean, I played that game like... It was the only game there was when it came out. I remember carrying my computer over to a friend's house to have a LAN party to play that video game. And so, I mean, so many of these opportunities that came out, like, I'm so grateful. Like, they were just a dream come true. And I never imagined that I would have a chance to work on these. Yeah. Were some um, more difficult to work on than others because, you, you know, so many fingers? Were, were there points where you're like, there are too many hands in the pie sort of situation? Or was that never the um, case? Like, it was always just the right balance? I, I can't really complain. I think that anytime you've got an IP owner, like their job is to make sure that you're being true to the IP and they're going to bring their fresh perspective and they're going to um, help guide you as much as anything else. And so are there IPs to work on that? There were moments of frustration and trying to get things approved was difficult. Yes. But I will say that in all of those cases, it made the game better. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't have any complaints from that regard. Wouldn't as far that. as IPs that I wish that I could have worked on, yeah. Or I mean, I'm not done designing games yet, so who knows? Um, well, we'll put it onto the universe right now. Yeah, like I I've said this before, but I would love to make a Star Trek game someday. Um, I grew up watching Star Trek: The Next Generation, and I've seen probably every episode of every show past that. So yeah, someday we'll see. Star Trek. Put it, put 
put it in that universe. And it's not like they don't make games, right? It's not like they've not made games in the past. So I'm sure they're. That's the biggest challenge is an IP like that. There are so many Star Trek games. And so if I did anything in that universe, besides having to get the rights to it, which is its own challenge, there is how do you make your game stand out and be right. different and be successful? Because there are a lot of good games out there. Yeah, that's true. So how did you evolve throughout your time at Fantasy Flight? Because, you know, you started, like you said, you were just making like making games at home and with your friends, and then you get this job. Was it just like they threw you into the fire? All right, design us this game from scratch, or was it like work your way up? And kind of how was your evolution while you worked there as, as a designer? No, I felt like it was... It was um, a good learning experience because I started out, they were working on the World of Warcraft board game and the game was like 90% done. And so I came on, they said, hey, we're working on this World of Warcraft game. We need more content created for it. So I was designing bosses for that game and items for that game and abilities for cards. And so there were, um, I was working side by side with this other designer john good enough and i remember we were both sitting at our desks and we had like our cards laid out in front of us and we just had d8s and we were just rolling them <laughs> like testing our like cards that we were like developing and then eventually we get to a point where we print them out and then we do like a full play test together and um so yeah it was just it was just creating cards creating content that was my first project at fft and then my second project was completely different it was um there was a classic game called britannia which ffg had the publishing rights to and so for that particular project i didn't do really any design work i was just a producer and so it was take this game that's already designed right and bring it through the process from start to finish and so that gave me like completely different experience i had to see like well how does quoting work how do we get artwork for this game um what is it like to work with an outside designer? Right. And so I really got to see all the aspects of the game, like of making a game in kind of those first two projects. And then I slowly kind of worked my way up. I didn't make my first original design until far past that, because after that was Warrior Knights, which was also a um, older game that we were reimagining and uh, Bruto Faduti had come on board to do like a redesign of it. And then I was to take his redesign and to do another design of it. And so it's kind of like, um, script writers, like rewriting each other's work. Yeah. Um, so that was the first game that I really had kind of control over the mechanics, I guess. Okay. But it still wasn't a full game from nothing. Are there pros and cons to working with other designers on a game, especially ones that may or may not, maybe they're hard-headed, maybe they're more aloof and they're not, and they're just like, whatever. Are there different pros and cons to working with others? I think the most important thing is like understanding, first of all, um, each other's strengths and weaknesses. Some people are going to be better at different parts of the process than others. Um, and I think that it's also important that like somebody has to be the one to make the final say, like, yeah. all right, we're going to be collaborating on this and that's great. But if you're butting heads, like who, who's going to be able to make the call there? I mean, ultimately, hopefully you have a good relationship with that person and you can like come to together and come up with a solution that'll make everybody happy. But um, I've seen other designers, not my personal experience, but I've seen other designers like get to a point where they're both like one person wants to take in one direction, one wants to take them in the other direction, neither one's willing to budge. And that's tough. Um, so you really have to be um, on the same page, just in the sense that you understand that you're working together to yeah. make the best game. Yeah. What would you say that your, your biggest strength is when it comes to designing? Again, it's self-reflection a little bit, but yeah, no, that's okay. Um, this might sound a little weird, but I, I think a lot about the user interface of a game. Like I come from a graphic design background, right? Yeah. And so a lot of what I'm thinking about at the making a prototype, it's not just about the mechanics and what we're going through. That is important, 
but I'm also watching as people play and I'm like, well, what things are they getting confused about and how can I visually correct that right. so that they have to read less text and they can just visually glance at something and know what they need to know. Um, and so I think, I, I feel like that's a strength of mine. Uh, I don't know if it's my biggest strength as a designer, but I, I hope so. And it was something I saw a lot of when I was when I was researching uh, a lot of things that people brought up, and it was in regards to your work with uh, Twilight Imperium. We go back to that game again. Was a lot of the the game balancing and being able to balance games and make sure things made sense and and worked out well in that in that notion. And I saw that repeat for a handful of other games in reference to you specifically. Okay, what is your what is your view and take on balancing games out and trying to make sure that things are fair and kind of even so things aren't kitty wampus when you're playing a game? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, first of all, there's two very different styles of games and each of them you're going to balance differently. Um, when it comes to a competitive game, like you want everyone to feel like they have a fair chance of winning, mm-hmm. right? You look at something like Twilight Imperium, where every race has its own powers and its own like ships with various stats and that sort of stuff. Um, you want everyone to feel unique and special, but at the same time, you don't want the other people saying, well, "He's obviously going to win." So um, why even try? Which is interesting because if you compare it to a game, say Cosmic Encounter, which is another game of <laughs> aliens taking over planets um (laughs) that game kind of has the completely different philosophy of balance which is that the group will balance the game and the fun is that every alien's broken and some are more broken than others (laughs) so i think in a competitive game you you get a little bit more freedom in the sense that yes players will help balance it out they will gang up on the leader if they need to if they're allowed to, depending upon the mechanics. Um, but it's also more volatile in the sense that if there's one broken mechanic, let's say I just keep pushing this button over and over, and every time I push it, it gives me two victory points, um, and I will just win the game, that's neither fun nor balanced. So right. you just have to run it through like as much playtesting as possible, and um, the... The, the really off-balance stuff will be pretty obvious unless it's some sort of very subtle strategy that just just someone needs to discover. So you need good playtesters. So you currently... For cooperative games, it's completely different, though. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned playtesting, and I can only imagine that right now, with Unexpected Games, it's pretty much just you, right? And whoever you bring on to help out with stuff... Whereas Fantasy yeah, so Flight is a big, big machine, right? <laughs> so how does yeah. playtesting work comparatively to both of those? That's fair, yeah. Uh, FFG, I want to say there were like 60-something people there. Uh, I don't know how many are there now, but we've got a pretty big. Um, there were always people around the office to playtest with, but at the same time, they all have their own jobs and they've got their own responsibilities. And so you can't just like pull people away from their desk to, to play test all the time. Um, at Unexpected Games, it's me and I've got one person. I've got Josh, who's my um, communications and operations manager. So he spends half his time doing our marketing and social media and that sort of stuff. And the other half of his time is helping me develop games. And I can just... It's, since it's just the two of us and he reports to me, I can just say, hey, Josh, uh, we're going to play test in 15 minutes. We can just do that, drop the hat. Now, granted, it's just the two of us, but yeah. um, my process is basically to play test internally, whether it's just with people around the office or people that you know, friends. And then once the game gets to a point where there's no obvious broken stuff and it's fun, then we start pushing it out to outside play testers. And that is the same kind of whether I was working on F- at FFG or working here now. Um, it's invaluable because these people are going to come at the game from a completely different angle with nothing but your rule book that you've written and the components that you've printed. And they're going to try to play your game. And 
maybe it'll happen the same way that it happens when you sit down at the table with your friends, but usually not. Um, and their perspective will immediately like open my eyes and make me redesign multiple times usually. Yeah, because a person, you designing it, you know how it works. So trying to figure it out isn't the thing. Whereas somebody comes in and they all they have is what you have written down in the rules. Uh, does that cause you to like have to sit there and like even rewrite the rules or oh yeah or maybe the game is just fine because they just couldn't interpret the rules just just rewrite the rule book a little bit differently so it made more sense i mean usually it's a mix of both okay like my last project um i pushed it out to our external alpha testers and they immediately had some issues with stuff i went through probably like three different redesigns where we were in alpha testing with external people where I'm like, ah, remove this system, put this in instead, remove this system. Let's try this. What if this worked this way? Um, and I'm a big believer in something's not working. Just redesign it. Don't try to put a bandaid on it. Take the whole engine out, put a new engine in. Yeah. Yeah. If it's not working. That, that makes sense too. Cause there are so many times where you you can tell you pick up a game and you can tell that they put a band-aid on something you can just tell <laughs> sometimes so. you have to honestly you're like this game is perfect except for this one little edge case okay we'll write a little rule that talks about that and it only comes up one in every 500 games so it's probably fine yeah yeah for sure you mentioned taking play <laughs> testing to do that. you mentioned taking play testing outside you know, you, you keep it in-house for a while and then take it outside. When you're working on, you know, NDAs and stuff like that for, say, a Star Wars, for, say, a Battlestar Galactica, things like that, how do you how do you guys deal with outside playtesting and not getting that information out? Or is that at the point where now everybody knows it's coming out and now this is, it's just as much promotion as it is playtesting? Yeah, I mean... We have all of our playtesters sign NDAs, regardless of whether it's an internal IP or an external one. Um, and honestly, the best thing is just that a lot of these testers I've been working with for years. And so like we just have that level of trust. I'm like, okay, well, I don't have any concerns of sharing this top secret game with you of this top secret IP because you've already played six of my games over the last decade and you haven't leaked one so yeah we can give you the more secret stuff that's awesome that's awesome what was the transition from fantasy flight to unexpected games was it just a i want to move home sort of situation or you have all these ideas and you just wanted to break out and do your own um can you what, what can you tell us about that that transition yeah um it was a mix of a few things so uh, first of all, I, I'd moved out to Minnesota to work at FFG and we'd had a kid that was getting a little older and we, me and my wife, were like, oh, it'd be nice if we could live closer to family. We could see them more often. She could grow up seeing her cousins and that sort of stuff. So that was definitely a big part of it. The second thing was I had a lot of ideas for games that were just not a good fit for FFG. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, they're sitting in my head or in a Word doc somewhere. And I'm like, I'm never going to get a chance to do these unless I try something new, unless I um, do start a new studio or something. Yeah. Um, and the third thing was I'd been making that same style of game for like 13, 14 years. And I think that I just felt like I've made everything that I can in that space. Um, and I wanted to challenge myself and to see if I could get outside of it. Yeah. Outside the box or try new things. Uh, you currently still do from what I read and correct me if I'm wrong, but still do have s some sort of a relation between yourself and fantasy flight Asmodee, I guess mm -hmm. now, um, you want to tell us a little bit about that, that relationship and kind of how you guys work with each other. Yeah. So, I mean, I, my studio, Unexpected Games, we're part of Asmodee, which also owns Fantasy Flight and Z-Man and Catan and a whole bunch of other people. Um, and I mean, over the years, I've gotten to know all of 
the people that work in those studios, at least um, some of the veterans there. And I mean, we keep in touch. I'll see them at events, whether it's at Gen Con or if we have some sort of company get together um, for Asthma Day. And like FFG in particular, obviously I'm pretty close with. And so, I don't know, I'll talk to people at FFG a couple times a year. And sometimes opportunities will come up, we'll get to collaborate together. Um, a good example was Star Wars Outer Rim expansion. I was talking to them, I said, hey, listen, I really wish that we could have made an expansion for that game. This is when I was working on Unexpected Games. And they said, well, we don't really have time to design one. I said, what if I carved out a couple of months of my time and I designed an expansion and I gave it to you guys and you took it the rest of the way? they're like yeah that sounds great so that's what we did um and luckily that game in particular outer rim my co-designer tony fanchi um still worked at ffg and so we had already collaborated on the base game and so it wasn't that difficult for us to um collaborate on the expansion in the same way are there any other games that you worked on in the past that never really came out with expansions or anything like that, that you still in the back of your mind, like I'd love to do an expansion for that, or I'd love to do a, a second game of that or an updated version. Sure. And you can say no too. <laughs> That's not... Yeah. I mean, yeah, there, there are certainly games that have come and gone that I wish were still out in one way or another. Um, a, a good example is the rune rune age. It was a deck builder that we made in, in the, uh, Runebound Descent Universe that had an interesting angle where you could play it cooperative or you could play it competitive. And it was a little bit more head-to-head -head if you played it competitive than a lot of deck builders out there. Um, and so I've also gotten a occasionally get requests for when's that game coming back? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> to FFG or I suppose if I ever had an idea to bring it back, I could pitch it to them and <laughs> But nothing in the works at the moment. Are there any other games from other other companies, maybe games that you never really worked on, that you're like, I'd like to have a hand in that game or an expansion or something like that from any other company? Um, I mean, honestly, nowadays, I, I've got so many like ideas of new games that I don't spend too much energy like looking back or... I mean, sure, I'll play some other games. Like, oh yeah, I've got this cool idea, but it it isn't anything more than a passing whim. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Magic the Gathering wanted to get in on on that, or <laughs> any of those any of those no. old card games you played back in the day. No, I don't think so. I mean, I I I did get the opportunity to work on a Star Wars card game with Star Wars Destiny and. That was super cool. That was one of the highlights of my career. Um, but I don't know. I think I think those inspirations could certainly be turned into similar games. I could I could talk for hours about like my philosophy on CCGs and the type of CCG I would want to design, but I don't have the <laughs> time to make a game that big with all the other things that I want to do. Yeah, yeah. What about your thought on things like the like? I guess living card games where it's it's kind of like a CCG but it's all in one box. Yeah, I mean, I love those too. Like I loved um the Marvel Champions game and Arkham and Lord of the Rings. We used to play the uh Game of Thrones game uh card game at FFG. Yeah. Um I played it when it was a CCG and then when it transitioned to an LCG, I played that too. And there's definitely pros and cons to it. I, I do like that you don't have to chase cards, but honestly, a part of me kind of misses that part too. Right. Like it was fun when I was a kid to like open packs and see what you get. And then to like trade with your friends. I had a friend and he played dark side, the star Wars card game. I played light side. And so like he got an Obi-Wan Kenobi and I got a Darth Vader. So we like traded them with each other and that, I don't know. It was cool. Yeah. And it's fun. It's not fun on the pocketbook, but it still was fun. And yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's very expensive. <laughs> so you've done a handful of other events. You did an AMA last year on Reddit, uh, things mm -hmm. like that. What do you think is, 
you know, a couple games that are kind of like the ones that people bring up the most to you when you're sitting down and, and doing something like that, or if you maybe do a convention or a, anything mm-hmm. like that, what do you think gets brought up the most? It would be Battlestar Galactica and Star's Rebellion. Those are hands down kind of the ones that people talk about the most. Um, but we also get like people asking about Elder Horror, Twilight Imperium. It's it's hard because games like Twilight Imperium, like I have a hard time taking credit for any of that because like Twilight Imperium third edition is what got me into FFG. Right. Like I I was designing fan homebrew expansions for that game and that's part of what got me the job at ffg um and so like in hindsight yes like i made the expansion the first expansion for twilight imperium third edition i was helping and i designed a few systems of twilight imperium fourth edition but i feel like i was just I don't know, the repairman in there, like turning some gears and like <laughs> changing the tires. Um, and so I'm glad that people still love that game and people ask me questions about it. I'm happy to answer them, but I feel like I don't necessarily deserve any of the glory for that game. How cool was it for you to sit there and go, this is why I wanted to do this. And now you're actually doing it. it put yourself in that moment of designing an expansion for Twilight Imperium. That, that's the reason you're there, right? And now you're actually doing it. Yeah. I was just doing it for fun, like at home, after work. And then, I don't know, a year later, I was sitting at a desk, like somebody paying me to do it. And it was actually going to be printed and like other people would get to play it and it'd be official. Like it was mind boggling. Did you ever have a feeling of like imposter syndrome where you're like, this shouldn't be me? I'm just yeah, a I'm just absolutely. a kid. I shouldn't be working on this game that I love. Yeah, I'm just a kid playing with Star Wars figures here. Like this, how is this a legitimate job? Now, granted, I mean, there's that aspect of it, but then there's the flip side where people say, "Oh, you make games, so you just like play games all day, huh?" And like, no, like there are certainly those fun parts where you get to play test, but oftentimes play testing can be as frustrating as it is right. fun. It's uh, there's a lot of work and a lot of like finer details and artists to wrangle and contracts to send out and spreadsheets to write like there there is fun and I enjoy that. But there's um, it's not all fun in games. Yeah, that's one of those reasons I ask anytime it's a whether it's a tabletop role playing designer or board game designer or anything of that sort video games at what point does it go from being a a fun you're having fun to this is work and it's not fun anymore and so i always have to ask that because and everybody's answer Mm -hmm. has always been different so yeah i just have to constantly remind myself that i'm getting paid to like do this thing that i would be doing for free like if i wasn't being paid to do this i would still be like designing games in my head and writing them down on scratch paper like Right. The fact that I get to turn that into a career, it's amazing. So you mentioned Star Wars Rebellion, Battlestar Galactica is two that people bring up a lot. What do you think it is about those games that really resonates with people besides the IP? Uh, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's a million, like you said about Star Trek, there's a bunch of Star Trek games out there. There's a bunch of Star Wars games out there. Uh, you worked on a bunch of them. What is it about Rebellion and what is it about Battlestar Galactica that that stands out in people's minds that keeps them coming back. I think that it is the social dynamic that those games create. So in Battlestar Galactica, you've got the traitor aspect, right? Um, and that it's it's a game where like you get emotionally invested because like you know that somebody is trying to betray you and so you get people like accusing someone who may or may not be a traitor i mean and sometimes you know who it is and you can't convince everyone else yeah and and people get all riled up about it like it's you're 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 making people have strong emotions while they're playing your game and so that's going to leave an impression on them and i think with stars rebellion you also get a, a social dynamic but you get it in a very different way in the like game of cat and mouse that the empire and rebel are playing. I think the fact that you have hidden information where 
the rebels know where the base is, the Empire doesn't. And the tension that those two players feel, it's very real. Um, and it's very different. Like, as the Empire, you're sweeping the galaxy and you're, like, frustrated. Like, where is he? Like, I know, I checked that planet, I checked, like, you feel like you're looking for a needle in a haystack. And as the Rebels, you see that they're, like, right on your doorstep and you're sweating bullets and you're like, oh, I hope he doesn't see how nervous I am that he just moved adjacent to my system. Like, man, his Death Star is, like, right here. He could win next turn if he moves. And so, like that is also giving you a very strong emotional reaction to the game. Yeah. And so I think if you can create a game where players have that very strong experience that um, it's going to stick with you, you're going to remember it and you're going to want to come back to it. What do you think is one of the big things in modern culture that has brought board games to the, to the mainstream? A lot of people think that the the board game industry in the last 10, 15 years has kind of had this renaissance and you were a big part of that. What do you think is one of the big, big factors as far as the public eye and people that, you know, aren't normally going into gaming stores that are getting into it? What do you think is one of the bigger, uh, a couple of the bigger contributing factors to that? I mean, the big one, of course, is just some of the, like, gateway games that came out that really showed people that board gaming wasn't just monopoly and risk mm -hmm. like settlers of Catan was crucial to like creating this whole gaming culture like i remember there were there was a time when people were saying Catan is the new gulf of silicon valley or like that was like what like tech entrepreneurs were playing instead of going to the golf course like i don't know how true that was right but I, I definitely hear stories like that. I know that, for example, um, a lot of video game companies will have like board game libraries in their like cafeteria or in their common area where people have been working on video games all day, like want to take a break from the screen. They're like, yeah, let's play a board game. Like it gives you kind of a social way to game with people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's just the fact that people have realized that board games can be so much more than what they thought they could be as a kid and people craving those social connections, right. Especially during the pandemic when like people felt so isolated from each other. I think we saw a big boom of like board games being something that could bring people together. And um, we hopefully created a whole new generation of board gamers from that. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of the pandemic, Tell us your thoughts on things like uh, sovereignty games, digital games, tabletop simulator, just digital games in general, whether on their mobile or you know phones, uh, computers, console, stuff like that. What are your thoughts on uh, board games in the digital space? Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't play a whole lot of them. Like I have a, a board game arena account. I, I play occasionally on there we actually just released 3000 scoundrels on board game arena in beta um and it's pretty awesome in the sense that it takes away a lot of the memory aspects and things that you can forget about in the table like what's the next step let me check the reference card like if you're playing on something like board game arena you don't need to worry about that it's going to tell you hey it's your turn do this yeah you're like, okay i can do a or b like it's it's really slick um if you have like the logic behind it in a system like board game arena on something like tabletop simulator where there's you can program logic but for the most part it's just you kind of pushing your stuff around drawing your cards following the instructions on them i use it a lot for play testing um especially when the pandemic hit like the fact that it allowed me to continue play testing with my group um and it lets me play test with people in Minnesota and yeah. people all around the world. Um, like I, I do all of my prototypes, both physically and on tabletop simulator. Um, and I play them both and it's a huge um, benefit makes developing games easier. Um, but I haven't really used tabletop simulator beyond um, for work purposes. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. 
what was the inspiration between 3000 Scoundrels? Tell us about the game. Tell us the inspiration of it. And uh, yeah, tell our audience about it. So there's kind of two ways that you can design a game. You kind of come up with a theme and a story that you want to tell and then figure out mechanics for it. Or you can come up with a mechanical idea and then decide, well, what's the theme for this? 3000 Scoundrels is very much, I had this idea for a mechanic. Um, and basically, if you look at any card game, so we'll use Magic the Gathering as the example. Cards often have a trigger, which says, here's when you're allowed to play this card, and then an effect. Here's what the card does. And I had the thought experiment of, well, what if I took those two things and I separated them? And so we had like one card told me when I could do something, and the other card said what it did. And then I mashed them together. Um, and so this started as a kind of playoff of the game, Machi Koru, where you're rolling dice. When you hit certain numbers, you get to trigger certain effects. And so my first prototype was just like a, a fantasy kingdom building game where you were like hiring advisors or something. And you would mash up two mini cards. One you would place above the other. And one mini card would tell you, what die number you're trying to roll and the other card told you what the effect would be um and it was a cool mechanic and i said well what if i took this a step further and so i then turned it into a pirate game where you were like pirates looking for treasure um and these were your different like crew members that you were hiring but now you were rolling the dice like machi koro but you could lie about them and so you'd like roll them into a, a cup and you'd say, I rolled a six. I'm going to use my six ability. And other people would call you for bluffing. Um, and it was cool, but the theme wasn't super interesting to me. And the um, the rolling of the dice made the game very swingy in the sense that you could like hire a crew member and then never roll the number to use that crew member. And you would be really frustrated. Um, and so... The dice got replaced with cards that you'd play from your hand. The bluffing remained. And I came up with the idea that it was like a Wild West themed thing with a kind of uh, alternate history vibe where there was somebody from kind of the near future, went back to the Old West with a bunch of technology, made an empire, became rich off of it, and then mysteriously vanished. And we're kind of the townsfolk that are like trying to fill in that power vacuum um and so that's that's basically the story of 3000 scoundrels um and i think that my only regret with the game is that i think that i might have made the game slightly too simple because after the game came out i was like oh i've got lots of ideas for an expansion and so we we made an expansion for it which just came out last year that i feel like completes the game that makes it like this is the full vision of what this game was trying to be um and luckily the expansion will be coming to board game arena too um i don't know when exactly but i think i think it's a really interesting game and the fact that we not only have the abilities that combine with the clear cards we also have like the artwork and like the characters randomly generated names and you get right. three thousand i think it's really fun I'm really proud of that game. That's awesome, and I've seen so much on it. It's like got a pretty decent rating on Board Game Geek, and and you know when I looked you up, all of the games that you've come up with, that's the one that shows up everywhere. Okay. When I when that's I was good. going through and like, okay, what can I do? Because like I know who you were ahead of time, but at the same time, like I I always try and find things, other podcasts, shows you've been on the AMA on Reddit, things like that. So I'm like, I'm constantly searching to find other things because sometimes little tiny details are fun to, to bring up and talk about. And that one, that game just kept popping up, popping up. And I was like, okay, this game has got to be a good game. It's got to be a good game because <laughs> I'm seeing it everywhere. So. And the best part about the expansion is that it then takes the, you have procedurally generated characters in the base game, 3000 of them. We double it. So now there's 6,000 scoundrels with the expansion. But then the technologies that you can steal in the game are also procedurally generated once you get the expansion. Okay. And so we're like, let's kick it up a notch. Not only do you have clear cards for your characters, now you get clear cards for the technologies you're stealing. Um, and it really, really makes the game kind of have that extra layer of strategy and kind of 
when your opponent secretly looks at something and you look at them, you're like, oh, he's telling me that he just looked at a really weak card, but is he telling me the truth to like make me look the other way? There's a lot of second guessing, which is one of those fun emotions. That's great. That's great. Uh, do you have any upcoming events, podcasts, conventions, Gen Con, Dragon Con, any of those kind of things going on? Yeah, well, I'll be going to Gen Con this year, almost certainly. Like, I don't have tickets yet, but um, I've gone just about every year. That's usually the one convention I go to every year. Um, I try not to uh, spend too much time away from the office because I want to be here making games, but it is fun to meet all of you in person too. So yeah. um, that's that's really the only um, big appearance that we have coming up. Okay. Sounds good. Social medias, you can find Unexpected Games at www.unexpectedgames.com on Twitter, Unexpect Games, uh, and Facebook, Unexpected Games, Instagram, Unexpected Games. They can find you at uh, PsyCorey, P-S-Y, Corey, on X or Twitter, whatever we call it. Uh, same with Blue Sky, P-S-Y, Corey, uh, Threads, Corey Kaneska. Did I get them all? Are those all of the things? Yeah. Awesome. A lot of social medias. Awesome. All the Everyone in the live stream, please stick around. Feel free to drop in your questions into the live stream. And uh, we'll get to those questions as soon as we get to the live stream Q&A. But before then, I want to let you guys know, coming up on Epic Realms, we're going to be joined by Mike Harris. He's a former McDonald's corporate chef. He's a social media star, host of the awesome new cooking show, Heroes Feast, which is based on the D&D Heroes Feast cookbook. That's going to be live February 12th. We're going to have that podcast available for you on February 13th. Also down the road, we're going to be getting Call of Cthulhu RPG lead designer from Chaosium Games. Mike Mason is going to be joining us, as well as authors Christopher Schmitz and Deborah Wild. So follow, rate, review. Give us those ratings and reviews. It helps us and in turn helps our guests. So for Corey Kaneska, I am Nick, and I want to thank you all for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs>